You are listening to episode 74. And I also would like to introduce today the Okiki Video Bootcamp. Yes, I will be launching a course, which I will have a wait list in the show notes. And I will be launching some group coaching as well. I know there has been a lot of requests lately of people wanting to learn how can they create content for their own brands. And so I'm looking forward to bringing you along in the journey with that. If that's something that you've wanted to gain skills and techniques on, this will be for you. You'll learn systems on how to create content effectively and efficiently and have more time for yourself in the process while reaching your clients. Again, you can find the information for the Okiki Video Bootcamp in the show notes below. On today's episode, I get to interview Kisan Patel, who is the founder and CEO of M&A Science. So we get to learn from his 10 years of experience about mergers and acquisitions and what it took to really build a tech team that helps other corporations and businesses do this even more efficiently. Not only does he run a mergers and acquisition tech company, he actually has a podcast of his own and he likes to bring the best practitioners where they can share their best practices and lessons from real life deals. So if that is something you are interested in in learning about mergers and acquisitions and how companies work, this is definitely the episode for you. And by the way, if you've been loving the Okiki podcast and the episodes, be sure to leave us a rating and to let me know which episode is impacting you the most. And be sure to subscribe to the Okiki podcast, both on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And on with the episode. Welcome to the Okiki Podcast, where we make inspirational people known. Brought to you by your host, Fian O'Brien. everyone and welcome to the Okiki podcast and today I have a very special guest his name is Kisan Patel and he is a CEO of M&A Science. He has a passion to drive the M&A industry forward and he has over 10 years of advisory experience. He has sold larger companies such as commercial banks and hotel chains. And so he has a lot of knowledge to bring us today about M&A management, agile best practices, and solving industry problems with software. So thank you so much, Kisan, for being on the Okiki podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me, Fian. So before we get into more of what you do, I wanted to ask, how did you get into the space and what was your educational background? Was this something that you always wanted to do, something in the management space in general? No, it was really different. I, uh, 
actually failed out of undergrad. I was doing a management information system program, but just struggled. I was somebody with an extremely short tension span. And when courses in college moved to lecture base, I struggled dearly with it. And I ended up getting into a real estate career, figuring I could build a career without having to have the requirements of a degree in real estate and struggled there as well to sell residential real estate, but was always interested in businesses, how they worked, had family members that owned businesses and found my way to work with a little boutique advisory shop that was helping business owners buy and sell businesses. And I started getting my traction there where I really enjoyed spending time reviewing financials, building out a business case on deals, finding the opportunities to add value. After a year, started my own practice to do that, but have a better focus than the firm I was working at. I think they were very broad and didn't have a clear focus on what industries they wanted to hone in on. And that's what led me to specializing in hospitality and then eventually uh, small financial institutions. That's really great. And it's interesting hearing your story. So with the undergrad and then with real estate, but then something about this boutique agency and this industry seemed to like spark your interest. So I just wanted to ask for the audience because a lot of our audience are people trying to find their passion, pursue their passion. What was it in those moments with the boutique that really caught your attention and began to really get your mind to activate and actually really want to do this? Yeah. I mean, I think like when you identify what you're really passionate about, build into it. And I think the big thing was thinking long that this is something I could do for the next 10 years. I think that's got to be a key thing. The challenge I had was I would always, within that industry, I'd bounce around between industries. I always find this industry interesting. So even in the early parts, I would focus in one sector, then started doing uh, restaurants, then healthcare and jumped around. I really didn't find my success until I focused in one industry and became a subject matter expert. Because over time, you'll keep learning more and more and more. And then when you switch industries, you, you're starting over again. So even I was doing M&A and had a core competency, but specializing in industry was really key. I think that's the big thing. You know, I got three little kids and I always sent them with their purpose that their goal is to find what they love to do and be the best in the world at it. And that's like giving them that expectation. It doesn't come easy. Like you really got to work hard for it. And it's got to be something that you're going to be dedicated to over a period of time because that success doesn't come in the near future. It always comes over time. And even though you're like on a daily basis, you may not see that progress, you may encounter the ups and downs, but know in the long run that you're making that progress to achieve those greater goals. That's great. And another thing I noticed is that in your experience, you noticed that there was a lack of efficient technology around managing, you know, these deals of selling companies, buying companies, and like some of the management in general. So you talked about segueing from that boutique into your business, really getting your niche honed down. And then again, in noticing that, what did you notice and what makes your boutique and what you're teaching so different and revolutionary in this space? Yeah, I, you know, it, it started with the software in the beginning where I took a lot of inspirations from the software industry, seeing how these software engineers were utilizing project management tools to manage building software and drew parallels to similar challenges 
that we had managing M&A, why not have a similar type of product to help with that? And we really started the company around that. What we soon found in working with a number of corporations was there's this larger underpinning problem in the industry that the industry itself lacked standardization. There's a lack of best practices, even evidence-based approaches in doing these large complex deals. So from there, we really took the time to interview practitioners, learn from their experience, be able to identify patterns, identify what are the proven techniques in the industry and document it into a framework. In doing that, one of the key themes we kept reflecting on was that the software engineers, they not only use these tools, but they use these agile techniques that drive a lot of efficiencies in the way they work together that again could be applied fundamentally to M&A. And we started blogging about it, but it wasn't until we had conversations with Google and Alassian and validated these ideas that they were actually utilizing these agile techniques stemming from the engineering culture and applying it to M&A with great success. And that's what gave the enough confidence validation to go out and put a book together to collect these different ideas, different techniques we've identified into a framework that we then published and today help organizations adopt these kind of techniques. But principally, same thing as the software industry, going from this old school, traditional plan-driven waterfall approach to moving into more of an agile-based approach, which is you're less focused on creating this really detailed plan to execute. You're more focused to respond to changes as they're happening. When we think of software, the challenge is you have a lot of assumptions about the user wants and you can run off and create a detailed plan and go build it and then get feedback from the user. And it's extremely expensive to make those changes once you build a product. So the idea of the agile is that you break down what are the components or features that are going to create value for the user, prioritize it, and then build it section by section. And you're continuously reprioritizing as you get feedback. So you'll deliver something real simple, get the feedback, iterate on it and, and build it out that way. So it's more of around getting the feedback and making those changes as you gather the feedback. And M&A is really similar because when you do a large transaction, you're acquiring a business, you have very little information up front. You know, we can imagine like two executives in a first class plane making a handshake deal of I'm going to buy your business. But then as you progress, more team members get involved when they go through this diligence phase of validating the information that's represented, identifying the risks, planning for what they're going to do with the business after they close on the deal, more information gets disclosed. And then once you you finally close and the transaction, even more information gets disclosed. And that's when you really identify additional risks and opportunities as you uncover more information. And that's where that plan driven the same dilemma. Like you just can't build this detailed plan up front. You really don't have the information to. That's where that agile approach fits in really well when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I'm definitely more familiar with hearing that in the tech space, but I can see how you drew the parallel and with explaining how like the mergers and acquisitions conversations even happen, why it makes sense to kind of approach it in this same way. So you kind of touched on this before and covered some of my questions that I was going to ask you next, but you took the time to validate the idea. You said you talked to Google, like what were the initiatives you took then to really, I guess, launch your brand? Because as you mentioned before, you had 
worked with another boutique agency. So how did you create that buzz, I guess, in your industry and create that trust that people want to approach you as the expert? Like what was the initiatives behind that specific? That takes time and it really does evolve because in the beginning, you're starting from little resources. So just getting a website and getting messaging up there is the starting place because people are always going to look at your website as a reference. Even doing that, that feedback loop, because who are your prospective customers? Are you actually using their language or using your language? And it's important that you had those early conversations to validate the problem you're solving so that you can listen to your prospective customers, how they describe the problems that they have that you're solving for and being able to utilize that same language. Because that's what's going to resonate and land the best with your prospective customers. It's not always what you think it is. And maybe it is, but it, you can always fine tune it when you get that feedback from the actual representation of those customers. I think once you start with that website, you start with the basics. You know, I think the mistakes we made were anything that we spent a lot of money for in the early days. I think at the end of the day, to get our first customers, we had to go knock on doors. I mean, we were literally cold messaging, cold outreach on LinkedIn and doing a lot of it the nature of our business involves managing sensitive information so there was a big trust issue that we had to overcome it wasn't easy at all i mean we even i had friends in the industry and i still couldn't get them to use our solution i had to go out and, and knock on doors after door after door and finally one banker gave us an opportunity to work on a deal and that's where things started opening up and then we started making it gets a little easier it gets a little easier but there was still challenges with the go-to-market I think along the way, we kept referencing what competitors were doing and basically copying what they were doing, which isn't, again, the right thing to do. That feedback loop, can you talk to the, those prospective customers, understand how they buy, how they look at your product, how can you make it easy for them to purchase the product? Because that that was our, again, bigger mistakes. When there's a large mature company, they're operating on a completely different model. They had sales reps, they had bottomless expense cards to take people out, and, and we had to compete against that. We can't do that in the same way that they were. We had to find more creative ways. So then we ultimately ultimately found that creating content, educational content was a much better means. And it, it was a long-term, you know, we didn't have a big budget to run a bunch of paid ads. So we started creating content. We started podcasting, utilizing transcripts in the podcast to write a series of blog posts, use that to feed into social media, and then put together eBooks from that content, these different assets. And that started building out our SEO. And over time that grew organically and continue to grow and grow. And you know, after five years, you, you really have a pretty substantial amount of content out there that's generating interest inbound. And then at that time, it, again, really depending on your whole business and market that you're going after, for us, it was important to think of the customer experience and the way our sales team was delivering that. And we continuously fine tune it to understand take the information and what we're uncovering about the pain points from the customers and how we're providing them a way to understand and get educated on how our solutions would help them overcome those problems. Once you get a sense of where 
your sweet spots are because it's early you run around trying to get money from any firm that will pay you but then you'll identify that there are certain types of customers that you have an immense amount of success with and that's where you really need to focus and grow in that area and sometimes their economics may be better for you to work in certain areas for us larger corporations were fun for us to work with because they're bigger they had more complex problems and the outcome of solving larger complex problems was you got compensated more, you produce more revenue. So that that's where we started gravitating towards that. But then realizing that all these leads that we get don't necessarily fit that ideal customer. And then it made more sense to start going outbound and building a sales team that targeted that specific group. And that, that's like another early mistake. We started building an outbound team then without a clear ICP, ideal customer in mind. And that didn't work out. It ultimately failed. And then we focused on the marketing, built that up, and then really understood where our ICP was. And that time we were building out the outbound function. So it really, really evolves when you think of the brand not only just the visible stuff, but it, it is the experience that you create in the conversations that you have and what you're delivering there. Are you uh, just a straightforward, straight to the point type of sales experience? Or is it more of a consultative sales experience? Are you providing additional resources? Is your approach to provide value upfront for free and build a relationship? That those are all components that fit into your brand that needs to align with the greater image that you provide that people reference as soon as they come to your website. Yeah, no, actually, thank you for that answer, because I feel like that really mapped out for the audience, like all the pieces that go into the brand, you know, I feel like that's one of the best answers I've ever gotten, because I feel like it's very like, you know, I was on social media, or I had my website, and it kind of ends there. But you really took us through the journey of even discovering who your ICP was. And I found it really fascinating to hear how you talked about how the content was bringing you people and the podcasting, which as a fellow podcaster for podcasting for five years, that's definitely a lot of effort. But then you're realizing who the ICP actually was and maybe that content isn't even bringing those people but it seemed like it was bringing some of them because you're able to recognize who to focus on so that that's really fascinating in itself and that's some of them were still drawn to that content I guess in light of that too you kind of talked about lessons mistakes <laughs> interchangeable so like you said it kind of helped you really focus on that client and I would say for those listening who are kind of in your boat too, or wanting to do something similar like you, I should say, what is your suggestion around content specifically? And like, whether it's good for them, whether they should go about it specifically, if they're trying to launch a company, launch a tech company, launch something that they're trying to do uniquely in the world. Given these experiences you had, if someone came up to you and <laughs> they're just starting out, what advice would you give them? I like the idea of building the the content or the audience first, because they feel like a lot of entrepreneurs rush and they want to build a product and take it out to market. And they realize that the distribution part is the hardest part, building the product's easy part. But nowadays it makes more sense to flip it around and build the community, which is defining a space. That's the first and foremost is figure out a space again, that you're really passionate about that you can define and build yourself into being a subject matter expert. And it could be anything. You'd be surprised. I mean, the, the folks that are out there 
just reviewing microphones or mattresses and they become a subject matter expert. They do really well. They build a whole career out of that, becoming the, the expert and, and having the reviews and so forth. So honing in and figuring out what that specific area is that you can be a subject matter expert. Maybe you have your unique spin on it too, because there could be an area that's large enough. There's folks out there, but you can have your own angle and spin to it. I think even our space, like there is a lot of folks that were doing it, a lot of big consulting firms that are providing content, but we noticed there were large research studies with sort of quantitative data points that they collected. And for us, that like we realized like the industry, they want to know the more practical how-tos, which requires doing a series of qualitative interviews. So we identified that and said, hey, can we create something different? Let's be a subject matter expert in the same space, but we're going to take a different approach. We're going to be all about the education, hence the brand M&A science, and we're going to do it through a series of qualitative interviews. So that, that was our unique approach, even though there was already encumbrance there that that had that presence and so forth so you know but figuring it out where's where's your subject matter expertise going to be and then when you identify that think of the mission around it because i think that's what really helped us a lot was when we started our podcast it wasn't just to create content it wasn't just to be the experts at MA. it was to provide a platform that enabled practitioners to share lessons learned. That's what we're, that was our mission was like, we know that the real valuable lessons are there within practitioners experience. And if we can enable them to be able to share it, that's what's ultimately, that's what our mission was, was started from was being able to do that. Then it creates just a greater purpose. It makes it a lot easier to pull folks in, let them know what you're about. Say, hey, this is what we're doing. We, we created this podcast to allow folks like you to be able to share your lessons learned. And then the people identify with that. And it just, it allows you to expand, keep that theme going as well, and really positions what, what you're trying to do and allows your listeners to even rally around it as well. I think that's, if I was going to go after content strategy, I would really focus on those things and have the conversations. Like it's not just sitting in a room coming up with it on your own. You know, think of the audience who those folks are, try to get conversations with them, even just tell them, hey, I got an idea for this content series, but I, I want to make it valuable. Would you mind taking 15 minutes of your time to, to have a conversation? You know, I challenge people to do a series of those. Don't just have a few, but try to get 10, 20, 40, and you'll look for the patterns, look for things that people are asking for. We continue to that today, even as a mature company that's 10 years old. We constantly use feedback loops everywhere we can. We do events, we ask for feedback, we want to get better, how do we improve? And that leads us to identify adjacent market opportunities. We've been able to launch additional business lines over time as we identify problems and needs that our uh, uh, cohort of, of users or community members want. But start with the, the subject matter area that you want to hone in on and try to drive a, a mission out of it to rally your your uh, audience around. Yeah, that's great that it's not just content for content's sake, but like really thinking about even in that, which angle will be different? What will we be giving our audience specifically that's unique and beneficial to them? And I also wanted to briefly touch on the fact that you created a software Correct me if I'm wrong, but that also makes you a tech company. So behind that, given that that was the space, did you also have to go through all the experiences that tech companies go through where you had to get like the angel investment, VC investment, or was this more of a bootstrap situation towards making this a reality? 
Yeah, I mean, we we bootstrap this, and that's a it's a decision. It's not one that one size fits all. It really depends on the entrepreneur, their industry, their space they're playing in, the goals that they have. It really depends because it, it you know for us, I, I think we we're fortunate. We had an opportunity to raise capital. We passed on it, but it actually allowed us to have a longer run rate. And ultimately, we realized the industry moved a lot slower than we thought. So if we would have raised the money, burned through a cap, we might not be in existence today, but that we were able to stay really lean and weather out those early years. Now we're starting to see that curve in our favor and the growth happening. And now we get a ride along with it. And then at some point we, we, you get the opportunity to reconsider and say, Hey, does it make sense? Because it's, there's a lot of considerations. You get, you got to be able to allocate capital. Well, it's a whole skill set. I mean, just raising money to raise money. It's not that easy. You need to be able to efficiently allocate that capital to generate value to provide a return to those investors. And that's a whole skill set of its own. And it's difficult to do that in scale, you know, to do it with, you know, a few hundred thousand, then you get the millions and tens of millions, it, it gets much more uh, complicated to, to do that efficiently. Part of it's like assessing your own skills as an entrepreneur and your own personal goals. There's a lot of considerations there. And then in some spaces, like I said, if you don't have that market opportunity to capitalize where you can allocate the capital efficiency efficiently to generate the value, then it may not be the right way thing to do to raise a, a lot of capital in that space. You may be better off to, to take that, that bootstrap type of approach. And I think too, sometimes you get new entrepreneurs. It's There's a lot to learn, just being an entrepreneur, building a product and things of that sort. So if you can figure out ways to learn those things without wasting your money or other people's money, that would be ideal. I mean, honestly, if I were to go look back and reflect on my own experience, the one thing I wish I did was join a Series A funded startup spent maybe a couple of years, a year or two with that company, just to see, just to learn the capital allocation, just to see how they, they build functions, how they grow and scale. Getting those lessons would have been extremely valuable when going off and doing it on your own. I'm just looking back, there's an opportunity to do that that allows you to really get those skills. Then it would definitely help when uh, doing your own venture because it is a lot harder than you anticipate if you haven't experienced that growth environment before and really uh, done something relatable. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for giving insight to that for some of our listeners who are also interested in the tech field. Just thank you again for the comprehensive interview so far and just really explaining like the different industries and how to go about even going into the industries of choice. I wanted to ask you a final question. What do you value the most about the position you're in today and the company you lead? Part of it is because we don't have a big investor base. We do have a lot of autonomy in the company, but you know, that, that allows us to really give us freedom to create and experiment and try things and, and just really curate an open collaborative culture where there's a lot of bottoms up ideas coming from team members. I think that's a big thing that I really enjoy that we get a, I, I'm a builder, you know, there's different types of CEOs. There's the sales type of CEOs and then there's various types of, of profiles, but I'm definitely more of the builder type. So it's, it's fun for me to sort of find products to build and even products within our products. But what I really value is just having the team that we work with that when you get a be part of building a team that you can be really proud of and excited every morning to work with the team that's capable and go after goals and generate results, build products, generate value for customers. That's, that's just exciting and fun, especially when you just create an environment where it's everybody feels part of it. They've, they're motivated, they're learning. You know, it's not like the, like 
like a big culture. You, know, you hear stories about friends aren't happy with your work or like it's a toxic culture, but you can really be excited about it. That We got good momentum. The growth is there. We're set off in an industry where there's a massive amount of opportunity to create change and create value for organizations. I think that's what makes it exciting to, to be in a role like mine. Yeah, thank you so much, Kisan. And thank you for really bringing so much value to our podcast today. Where can our audience find you? And are there any updates that you have or any kind of launches that you have that you'd like to let the audience know about? Sure. Um, you know, if anybody's interested in M&A, you know, a lot of times we think of stereotypes of investment banking careers. There's so many careers in M&A that are fascinating in all areas. All every function of a business will go through a lot of change when M&A happens. So there's a lot of folks that drive those change, the finance side, there's so much. If anybody's interested in learning more about different aspects of M&A, how it works, you know, where we have a website, mascience.com. And last year we launched a diversity scholarship. So one of the big things is our industry, it's underrepresented by women and minorities, and we want to put some action into it. So we created a diversity program that allows those interested to apply and get access to all of our training programs that we have completely free. That's one just resource that we have out there. And then myself, I'm on LinkedIn, it's Kisan, K-I-S-O-N Patel. And um, you know, always happy to, to connect with those that are aspiring to get in the field or grow. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll definitely have that in the show notes. And just thank you for the value that you brought our audience today. Thank you, Fian. Appreciate the time.